Hey, so uh, this is kind of awkward, but uh, my mic died during the recording of this podcast, but we still got like 75 minutes. Uh, anyone listening, you, you will miss out on, I think, a pretty hilarious net neutrality joke um, and some chat about America walking around with a big stick or something like that. Uh, but all is not lost. We'll hopefully be back. Um, and hope hope you all enjoy the episode. July 6th, 2022. This is Two Reluctant Cogs. Um, and we are back sooner than um, we've been, I guess, in a while. And it's because we need to talk about the recent Supreme Court case, uh, Shirtliff v. Boston. The court ruled 9-0 to zero in a unanimous decision that it was unconstitutional for a city of Boston to deny a ceremonial city hall flag raising request. Sai, how do you feel about that? <laughs> I am so the court ruled against the denial of a, of a flag raising request, meaning that the city of Boston is compelled to provide a flag raising ceremony for anyone who applies, regardless of the grounds of that uh, ceremony. 9-0. I think... Yeah. 9-0. Unanimous. So you're telling me that, number one, bipartisanship still exists, and that legal... There was no... Ex, <laughs> there was no plausible legal defense <laughs> for the denial? You're trying to tell me that of all the nine court justices, not one person could come up with a plausible legal defense of, of for the city of Boston? No, and let, let Shirtliff who raise is the his city? flag. <laughs> I have to know, like, I have to know what, why did, why did the city of Boston, like, go hard and just say, like, okay, this, this is a no-go. Like, what, how did they end up in this situation in which they somehow compel the Supreme Court to go 9-0 against them? <laughs> Dude, you know, you honestly hate you know, to see it. It's you, like hate, the, you hate to just, see a lawyer <laughs> get their case all the way to the Supreme Court. It's really a career day for them, right? And you're representing <laughs> the city on the hill, Boston, the founding of the, you know, yeah. where, where it all yeah. started here on this uh, July 4th yeah. week, right? And uh, they go up there ready to show Shirtliff who's boss. And uh, yeah, turns out partisanship, it's dead. We can all band together and agree that this district attorney doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. Let that man raise yeah. his flag. I mean, all every single conceivable legal uh, legal philosophy represented on the court across multiple generations, across all the demographics represented by the court, just unanimous. Every no matter who you are, who you are in the court, what your legal philosophy is. According to every possible interpretive tradition 
of law. Yeah. Dude, it's one they, thing they, they to all see, came to the same you conclusion. Know, it's one thing to see like Steph Curry come into your house and shimmy on your court as he hits game like <laughs> as he hits like dagger after dagger three. It's a totally other like spiritual defeat when Clarence Thomas and Sotomayor are holding hands as they deliver you a unanimous <laughs> verdict that no, you're wrong. Let Shirtlift raise his flag. <laughs> okay, and who is who is Shirtlift and Oh, you've already what, gone too what? deep. I, yeah, I have no idea who Shirtliff is. I don't know anything <laughs> about this case. <laughs> I want to know what the DA was like, 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 who, or the city of Boston. Like, what, what antagonized them <laughs> to, <laughs> such, to the point that they were willing to take their real, like, their defiance of of the flag raising all the way to the Supreme Court. Like, what about this person or individual or organization was so just. Dude, I hope it's them, not. Like, uh, it's not actually Boston versus Shirtlift. <clears throat> it's actually like Shirtlift's neighbor who happens to be an attorney, v Shirtlift, <laughs> and it's actually just a personal vendetta that this dude was like, "I'm taking this to the Supreme Court. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna risk my career here." But yeah, I have no idea. Um, so uh, speaking of Boston, we're talking about the Federalist Papers today, July Fourth uh, week. We tried to do this actually on July Fourth. It just it was never going to happen. Yeah, it was close to happening, and then, you know, all the hot dogs and Bud Light got to me. Yeah, the mass shootings, you know, and dodge those. Ooh. Ooh. Oh yeah, yeah. I didn't. I didn't. I what? I actually. What was I doing? I was rock climbing. I'm in. I'm in. Um, Maine, MDI. Rock climbing for most of the day. Got back. Was like, yeah, yeah. I'll definitely record a podcast. And was obviously not a chance. Un- unfit, un- not a chance. <laughs> You're not trying to dive um, into uh, like founding legalistic frameworks. Uh, I did actually. I laid down in bed. I was like, okay, I'll get home. I got home. Read, fe- read Federalist Number Ten, and fell asleep. <laughs> Just <laughs> they texted you. Uh, I can't do it, and then it was immediately asleep. <laughs> were you were you comforted at night by the um, pure? Uh, holy legalistic principles which um, frame our, our current constitution and, and democratic republic? No, but I was um, comforted by the vigor and the enthusiasm and the uh, and the joyous sort of energetic uh, like voice that you know pervades you know both that Madison's writing and Hamilton's writing it's very like uh, energetic it's like you can't possibly imagine uh, a participant in our democracy today say our republic they're very insistent yeah. on being a republic How dare you. I, I'll say a participant at, uh, in our republic today arguing with such um, like earnest earnest reason Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, the Age of Enlightenment's dead. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> we make memes yeah, now. Like, you know, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, like we get it's all it's we we do Twitter posts now. It's just like the, it's shocking that it just yeah, I don't know. It does it seems like, you know, it seems like um it seems sort of like 
the same phenomenon of like kids who grew up at like a very small kind of country high school and then the kids who are growing up in the city this the, the big city high school in the city and like the kids in the country high school just are like way behind uh the like kind of like cultural exposure and the for better or for worse uh than the, the kids in the big high school and it just feels like that you're just like how was this how were people engaging in such like er, with such earnest <laughs> argumentative and like sort of like honest to god belief in the way the world worked the way things are i, I think it's we're all just so deeply cynical and nihilistic at like a base level that, that we don't even really acknowledge or accept that we don't even attempt to reason from like principles first principles or reason from like coherent uh, well, there, there's a lot of reasons for that, right? And I think, like, the, uh, <clears throat> I think it's, so first, I mean, yeah, we picked the Federalist Papers because it's, like, July 4th. And I think it's really interesting, yeah, your, your like, kind of emotional diagnosis, of, it's not even just emotional, but just, like, the, I had, like, a similar impression reading the the 10th <clears throat> uh, paper, um, or Federalist Paper or whatever, um, in that it felt like, I was like, this is really beautiful, really profound and also seems really naive at points. But I think it's, you know, particularly, I think America's going through a hard time right now, right? <laughs> like too. So it's also really funny and sad to, I, mean, I mentioned the like, the gun violence that people are, you know, I shouldn't even say that people are talking about because it's like actually happening. <laughs> We're just like murdering each other. There's obviously coming out of a pandemic, we're entering a recession, inflation is crazy. Roe v. Wade was just overturned. Uh, you know, there's, I don't I, I hesitate to bring January 6th up in the same breath, but um, there is this sense of like real fracture in the nation. There's this partisanship. There's this, um, you know, politicians and media are polling at historic lows, you know, um, probably polling lower than uh, King George was at this time in this, in this era. Um, and we went through, good, this is after point. coming through all of those intellectual movements, right, of like, you know, like the Enlightenment did die. Like we did, we hit like the modern era. We went through the 20th century, the bloodiest century in, in world history. And that changed a lot of underlying values. You know, we've talked about existentialism and the absurdism of Camus a lot. Talked, I don't know if we've talked about Nietzsche. Maybe we can do him one day. But <clears throat> all of the, yeah, like all of those ways of thinking about the world and then postmodernism after that and the moral relativism and all, all of the different intellectual movements that occurred after this guy wrote this letter um, are really meaningful and valid and interesting in their own right but it is really it's kind of fun interesting sad and you know I don't know beautiful in a way to go back and read like you said this like earnest writing about how should we build a country and so I think we're gonna talk about um, we'll talk about number 10 and maybe get to number 39 we'll see if we ramble how we ramble through number 10 um, but I guess and I, I can maybe do a quick summary of it but I'd love to you probably know more than me the kind of the history of the Federalist Papers to me the Federalist Papers are something it's like a lesson it was like a so a lesson I had in like US history in high school um, 
probably read excerpts. I don't think I'd ever read one of them. And I just know it's like political debates about how the country was formed, federalism, anti-federalism, different founding fathers had different ideas about how to structure the country before, during, and after the revolution. But I don't know, can you give any more context on like what these papers were, who were like kind of the authors, the time, or like when they were written, any of that? Because I know very little. Yeah, okay. Still not an expert. Um, but I, got, I can get to this. There's it no is, experts on this podcast. Of, yeah, I, yeah. That's the that's the branding is expert expertise free. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, at least we're at least we're honest about it. Um, uh, okay, the thinnest veneer of context. So, it's it's uh, Hamilton, Madison, and then to a much lesser degree, John Jay. I think he wrote maybe five, six, seven, eight of these, and then like big chunks. I think there's 86 total, maybe, and like 50 of them were written by Hamilton, and 30 of them were written by Madison, something like that. Um, and they're published in a newspaper, so these are like being like written as like almost like editorials for a newspaper, like just a nonstop barrage over like 80 days, or some number of consecutive days as the country is deciding whether or not to ratify the constitution as it's been drafted. That's funny because it does really feel like, you know, it's very similar to like what you'll see in the New York times right now. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, <laughs> it's, but it is, it's like public, it's like it's addressed to the public and to the people who are various interests at play who are uh, deciding whether or not they are, to ratify the Constitution, which has just been kind of debated and argued over at the Constitutional Convention. Hamilton and Madison were big, you know, core, uh, I guess you'd say, like, architects of the new Constitution. Uh, and, and, and I think, generally speaking, that the nature of that, uh, the nature of that Constitution being towards more a more powerful central government in contrast to the Articles of Confederation that was preceded it, um, so this they were trying to argue, at, you know, all of these essays are basically arguments in favor of the proposed Constitution and why that the proposed Constitution has advantages over a the the Articles of Confederation and b in in uh, in opposition to those people who say that there's too much power being uh, sort of given to this new national body, this new, new, new national framework. Um, I think I think Madison and Hamilton are, are both in their like 30s, I would say. I don't can't can't be sure of that, but I'm pretty sure they're young. They're like in their 30s or something they're, as they're writing these, which ex, which perhaps explains some of the youthful vigor and naivete and uh, earnestness of, of the writing. Um, yeah, I guess, the, I guess so that, that sort of gives you the context of where, where they're being written. There's, you know, there's a big block of people who are re- reluctant to like form this new national framework because of the fear of loss of power from the states to the to the, the to the national body, um, which is odd. I can't believe why they'd ever be afraid of that. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> if only they could if only they knew um, uh, yeah so that's the context I guess at, at, a, at a very high level um, and so there is a I think <clears throat> the Articles of Confederation um, that was just like a looser agreement between the states to like yeah, just... like we we won the war. Yeah, and it was basically like a, a very loose. It was much more like yeah, it was like basically much more like um okay, everybody has their own state unto itself. You guys you have all the power unto each state has its own power and and we'll gather in this body that has like everything has to be like I think by unanimous consent. There's no like national there's no national like real national power there's no national government there's no, no national like bodies there's no there's no frameworks at all at the national level except maybe like a a convention a, a, okay so a we can all come together and like representative if, if someone some nasty European country comes over we could uh come together yeah we can convene and figure out talk about it but what and we'd have to do it by consensus yeah um and then that kind of fell apart for a series of reasons, but the most classic and obvious one is like this thing called Shays Rebellion happened, where is it the a bunch whiskey of rebellion. Got... I don't know if it's equivalent to the whiskey rebellion. It might be, but I always knew Shays Rebellion. It's like farmers getting pissed about something. I think it's about whiskey. Probably like I think it is taxes. Or... Yeah, and they just start like rioting and like kind of form a militia and start like I don't know probably like seizing government yeah. agents houses or something you know just i don't know how that how it worked back then everything was so podunk and casual that it's hard to imagine it being uh that awful but you know they were doing something and it took the the confederation was unable to really like it was so clunky and um took so long to get together and figure out what to do that but they were unable to like Assemble a national militia such that it could answer Shays Rebellion. It took forever, and so it, the inability of like the colonies to kind of not the colonies, I guess the states, confederation of states to like with conviction address a problem like Shays Rebellion kind of exposed the weak the weaknesses and the shortcomings of that that kind of framework. The confederation, of, I mean, the Articles of Confederation. Okay, so um, there was a need so for the, a stronger. Like the, the Fed, the Federalists want a stronger, stronger, more centralized power, um, and there's you know the opposition, which sort of wants to continue to kind of operate in some degree of like loose confederation. Cool. Okay. And, and so you know, it's, it's also be noted arguments. that each of the state. Yeah, and you know they. Was, there's 86 of these essays and they cover lots of pieces of this but um also we know that each of the states has its own is sort of like a miniature at this time I feel like the states I guess it's hard to fathom but like each state was its own country unto itself right it had its own legislature its own system of governance its own laws its own totally um judicial kind of and it, you know constitutional framework they all had their own constitutions or I don't know organizing documents there was a lot of diversity in that but they were also probably more or less similar all kind of being English 
coming all within common law, common law tradition. So there was a lot of similarities, but all very much distinct and little to no, um, little, there was like nothing connecting them outside of their national, their inheritance, the cultural inheritance from England. Yeah. And I think it's worth mentioning probably during this time too, just as like the economic context is you do have like the slaveholding South. Um, I think there were slaves more North as well, but there's like the kind of agrarian um, yeoman farmer, Jeffersonian type, like Southern culture and economy of like exporting, you know, agriculture or, you know, textile type stuff. Um, and then you, or the like cotton stuff, but, um, although I don't even think cotton was like the big thing they grew back then, but then you've got the, you do have yeah, like tobacco, the, maybe it's still yeah, tobacco. tobacco, stuff like that. The su- yeah. Yeah. The, the big Southern agricultural, like hadn't really taken off, but yeah. Probably yeah. Tobacco. But then you also have the, uh, Northern areas where you've got the beginnings of like, I mean, it's certainly, it's, this is like pre-industrial revolution or like kind of right around the beginning yeah definitely pre i would say it's defined more by like kind of mercantile right you know those ship shipbuilding yes uh there's a lot of shipping industry and there was banking there was finance and it was like just just beginning in these cities and so these are the the urban you still have the urban rural divide then even you know um yeah and the values of these people, and I, I'm bringing this up because you'll hear this in the writing, and so we'll talk, maybe I'll jump into a summary shortly, but you know, there's a reference to like different ways of life and different values that groups of people might hold across a big country. And I think the authors are thinking about, oh, you're a banker, or you are in agriculture, or you're a lawyer, or you're, you know, a merchant. Um, but there weren't or that you're, many. Yeah, or you're like, or, yeah. Or you're like, a, you know, a Puritan of New England, right? Which is like this, you know, one kind of religious community, Puritans of New England, versus like the Catholics of, you know, Maryland. Yeah, apples and oranges back then. The Amish, Am- Amish of no, not the Amish. Was it? Yeah, the Quakers of Pennsylvania, right? You know, right. Like, there's like significant religious diversity, um, if you consider that significant. But yeah, within well, the it was to them. tradition, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was pretty significant. I mean, th- those those distinctions had convulsed Europe for hundreds of years. They were kept in killing each other over those distinctions for a while. So that represented significant differences in values. Yeah. Cool. So I think that's the kind of, so I'm going to do a, maybe a brief summary of article or the 10, the, um, the 10th essay paper op-ed, um, written, (laughs) written by Madison, Madison. Um, I think it's 1786 is when this was written. So same year, the constitution was ended up being signed, right? That was signed in 86. 1786, yeah. Okay, cool. I'm just hitting you with U.S. trivia. I didn't, we didn't, I didn't ask you before. Can you any Dude, of this I don't know any of this. No, but you're I don't doing, know any you're of this. Doing great. <laughs> I'm just asking you a question. Um, cool. So I think that we, you know, I haven't read many more of these. We, re- we did read 39 as well, it was mentioned. But so number 10, I think that the central theme of this one is... 17... Is, what? 1787. 1787. 
was when it was signed or that's yeah. when this was written this is when it was published okay so this is after the constitution was signed hold up hold up hold up okay yeah do some fact checking do some live fact checking when was the constitution signed? live fact checking Cre- presented ratified 1788 brutal okay so this is still so this is a year before yeah, this is like because it, if you the Constitution has to be ratified by all the states, so they they draft the Constitution in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, I believe, isn't that right? Um, I think, and they draft it. There's like a whole battle of drafting it, and then all the then they they break up, and each state's, uh, you know, each state the the what do you, the delegation that had been sent to Philadelphia to debate the Constitution, draft the Constitution goes back to each state, you know, in a horse and buggy, you know, in a carriage over some cursed, like, country road. <laughs> and, th- and then they go back to the state, they tell everybody what's happening, then all the state people, all the powers that be in that state have to convene and get the update and, and read the document so that within each state there's this debate happening whether or not we should ratify. And that's the context of these papers. They're being published to help influence those debates that are happening taking place in each of the colonies. Uh, states up and down the eastern seaboard mm, okay and that you know that takes you know it's, it's like again to just highlight modernity verse back then it's like that takes years <laughs> that takes years uh, rather than like a week or like a day of like you know tweeting um, <laughs> yeah yeah uh, well um, they were able to do some pretty big things and uh kind of a shorter amount of time than you currently see. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, so number 10 is, I think, the easiest summary is it's about factions. It's about political factions and how to avoid them. Mm-hmm. Factions are bad. No one likes factions. So we're building this big central government, and it's going to have this structure of Senate and House and Supreme Court and President and all these you know, different branches and... We're trying to make the case that this is the best form of government, so that's kind of the position. And um, so part of that is is kind of putting the proposed form of government to the test against, you know, problems of government, you know, different government problems. So this one is primarily about factions and how factions are bad, political factions are bad. Um, hilarious, right, to, to read this, first of all, just full stop, hilarious to read about political factions being, you know, the problem uh, that break down governments um, in 1787 before this has even started. If only, if only uh, Madison could see 2022. Um, But the, uh, so the the, the main structure of the article is to kind of talks about, you know, the instability. And perhaps, just sorry. Yeah. Just to say, perhaps insightful, because here we are in 2022 and it's factions, which are, you know, yeah. they understood accurately, they, you know, pretty, pretty accurately that factions are the, are core to the what can and will plague uh, any sort of attempt at government. Yes, ab- absolutely. That. Yeah, um, and in fact, I mean, I'm not going to do the, the full breakdown right now, but yeah, he does open with like. No, you know, nothing deserves to be more accurately developed than the tendency of a you know a well constructed government needs to have a well developed way a tendency to break the violence 
breaking control the violence of faction and goes on to say like the instability injustice and confusion introduced into the public councils have in truth been the mortal diseases under which popular governments have everywhere perished so it's like the stakes are pretty high if you don't control yeah (laughs) uh factions your government's gonna fall apart and you know yeah by extension you're and i mean yeah, and you know they they used he uses the word violence, you know, like, the, like it's which I think I found interesting. Um, we use violence like in modern modern times, like to me, that like words can be a violence to people. Right? That's like a th- way you, violence is used today. But like he uses word factions, like the violence of a faction, the the tendency of a of a faction to. I don't know. To literally kill each other. I mean, it's like religious wars in Europe, right? Like, hey, I disagree with your interpretation of this holy text. Let's like fight about it for a hundred years. You know, (laughs) it's like that's that's what he's talking about. Like, hey, these two religious factions don't get along, and that that means bad consequences for everyone. (laughs) And you know, um, yeah, and of course he though yep okay, so okay sorry let's let's keep let's let's keep going through our step through. Yeah, well, so yeah, so that summary is about factions. Factions are bad. He talks about kind of the causes of factions. He talks about um, some of the, you know, ways that, you know, you can try to um, prevent them. Uh, ultimately, talks a bit about, like, kind of, they're inevitable, but there are some ways to, to solve them. Um, and then in the end, wouldn't you believe it, it turns out the government that he is uh, chief architect of is likely uh, best suited to control factions so that's kind of the that's kind of the the tldr on on this article but i think it really and so i think we yeah it's worth going through the different sections and and maybe start it'll start at the beginning kind of go through it because he does develop some like really profound points and then there are other things that are just like they're so on the nose that are just you can't believe it and then there's other parts where you're like "Mm, yeah i don't know if you uh you, you quite uh, thought this through, or, or could really fathom the implications, you know, obviously, 200 years yeah, later, I think 300 years a later. lot of, yeah, yeah, I think, just, just you saying 200, 300 years later, reminds me of our conversation last episode about um, three-body problem, and not, not to digress too far, but like, a lot of our, that conversation about the epicness of that book was like, people seeing civilization change over a hundred years or 200 years or 300 years. Right. Right. And here we are like this. If you think of this text as like a perspective, what this perspective would witness and feel in it seeing, uh, its implications play out over a hundred, 200, 300 years. Um, pretty, pretty interesting. little parallel. And, and stuff that's outside the control. Right. So I think that's like yeah. one of the, like just the globalization and its impact on this structure. Right. It's a, there's a lot of stuff to get yeah. into. So, and yeah. Yeah. So, I, yeah. So, okay, let's, let's, let's set up at the top, which I thought was useful is, um, a definition of faction that Madison presents and then the two causes of faction totally. that Madison presents. Um, you want to, yeah, sure. So he says, like, a faction, he defines a faction. By a faction, I understand a number of citizens, whether account amounting to a majority or a minority of the whole, who are united and actuated, it's like sharpened, by some common impulse of passion or of interest, adverse to the rights of other citizens, 
or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. So pretty specific yeah. definition, but uh, covers a lot of different um, groups here. You know, one group that comes to mind would be Republicans. Uh, another group would be uh, Democrats. Um, but you could also see well, uh, this as Quakers, right? <laughs> as you mentioned. Um, yeah. Or Catholics. And, you know, there's like infinite. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's his point in the next in the next bit where he defines the two causes of faction. Um you know, uh, let's see, what does he say? There's, he says there's two, basically there's two ways to remove the causes of faction. One is by destroying liberty, which is essential to the existence of factions. And two is by giving the every citizen the same opinions, the same passions, and the same interests. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he starts by saying the two those ways to the, control factions. Those, you either control the causes or you no, control no, no. the effects. The, the two, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And, and he says the, the two the, causes, the causes are, are yeah. you know, the existence of liberty and the existence of differing opinions, passions, and interests. So basically, <laughs> he says the latent causes of faction are, sto- are sown in the nature of man, right? Like, right. insofar as men are free, sorry, as, insofar as people are free, and insofar as people have any shade of differing opinions, passions, or interests which is basically uh, the, the premises of this government. I mean, the premises of this, uh, this union of, of this Republic, we're not going to, we're not going to eliminate the causes of faction, which means cause, factions are going to be with us no matter what. And that's, I think to your point, like there's an infinite variety of factions. It's not just Republicans and Democrats, Federalists and Anti-Federalists. Uh, it's every like slice and division, way to conceivably organize people around a, a various set of interests that could possibly you can possibly imagine um yeah and i think he, he really when he talks about you know he's like yeah as you mentioned you know this is we're trying to build a free society right i think it's really interesting actually to think about a one-party system right um because they tend to con- one-party system if you think a, you know a democratic republic wants to control factions um you wouldn't believe how much a totalitarian state wants to uh, control factions. And so I think, you know, totalitarian or like single party states, uh, whether China or Russia or whatever, you know, I don't think they have a problem addressing the causes of faction rather than the effects. You know, I think they don't have a problem stamping out liberty or trying to get people to all have the same passions and interests. But I think it's, it's you know, to the credit of our founders, um, you know, I think they're like, yeah, well, we want to protect, we want to protect freedom. We want to let people freely associate, have their own ideas, live the way they want to live. Um, you know, certain people, of course, in that era, but nonetheless. Um, and so we want them to do that. And because people will literally never agree about anything there and people will by def, it's like he has this whole paragraph around about why people are different, which I thought was really funny and adorable of like, you know, cause they might have different jobs or they might have different, you know, uh, is different. Um, yeah, I guess he, he uses passions a lot of like different hobbies, different ideas, different values, different, you know, uh, you have different economic, you know, stakes essentially. And so, um, <clears throat> he even says, I think, which is really funny, the most common and durable source of factions has been the various and, un- and unequal distribution of property. Those who hold and those who are without property have ever formed distinct interests in society. 
sickening pre-Marxism right there. Um, but, you know, so he's just like, yeah, so people will disagree. People will group together. And then as, I've, as we've all witnessed in Europe, that shit show over there, you know, like-minded people will get together and agree that other people should think like them or other people should not exist. And we'll start oppressing each other, whether it's through, you know, something like a tax that you pass in a you know legislative body or whether it's with like pitchforks but either way we can't control the causes so how do we mitigate the effects of these groups whether they're bankers or yeah whatever whoever whatever faction might come up how do we mitigate the problems that come up with them because we're not going to change people right yeah and and moreover it's foundational premises for us to not change we're going to take we're going to take human liberty and human nature as a, as a given and not try to address them we're going to take them as a given and build a build a government that works in, in works with that rather than tries to shape it um, which i think would be like the contrast to like a totalitarian society that is willing to say no we're going to shape the minds of our citizens to fit our government um, or maybe the common good, right? I mean, because there is a yeah. positive way to spin yeah. the totalitarian totally. spirit. And that's like, I can get into my China apologia, but, you know, obviously yeah, totally. all, of the, the crimes, <laughs> all the crimes of the Chinese government aside, right? It's like if they decide, hey, we want everyone to not play video games. We've decided that's a societal good. They'll just pass a law saying everyone's not allowed to play video games anymore because that's not, it's not good for you. And we know that. And yeah, we're just going to restrict. Which that. you know, I would I would also say I, it's funny because I'd also say like, you know, is it is it the case that in a totalitarian like society like um, China, uh, I don't I don't know if totalitarian, but um, whatever whatever sort of society you define China as or any other version of that has have those societies and governments bodies party you know the one party states are those parties free of faction even. Though they attempt to eliminate the causes of faction, I'd say no. It's there's still faction. It's still jockeying for power. Um, right. I guess totalitarians just, do, but I think the China would maybe be different. You're right. It's probably like when you think of like a, I think of like a North Korea as like you know maybe the most extreme example where like you're not allowed to think certain things, right? Like, or you're you're going to a death camp, um, and. That's probably true in the China, in China too, but there's more of a like ah well some people do this some people do that type of thing within this one party structure and how yeah. do we prevent them from you know overthrowing us essentially yeah. how do we control yeah yeah it's like it's just the layer which they're willing to accept factions expressing themselves and um, we're willing to let them express themselves like out in the open at all levels at all times. You know, factions exist within any system. It's just a question of to what degree do you acknowledge and uh, let them give them room to breathe. And yeah, yeah, because my read is that even in a place like China, there's still fa- yeah, even in a place like North Korea, there's still jockeying for power uh, and maneuvering behind the scenes. Um, that's imperceptible to the outside observer, but is, is still taking place. 
out down below at the levels of the average individual. Maybe not. Maybe maybe a faction has been stamped out of existence at that level. Yeah. No, that's good. So uh, uh, so then he goes on to talk about I guess the. Um, Okay, so how do we control the effects? And he kind of gets into uh, why democracies are bad a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm trying, struggling to find a quote, but essentially just like, you know, if you're going to have factions, right, by definition, and you have like a true like democracy, well, it's very easy for a faction to become the majority. Um, it's not easy, maybe, but it, it will happen eventually. And the worst thing is then for that majority to just... Like he seems really preoccupied, predominantly, with the tyranny of the majority. Would that, would you say that's fair? Yeah. Like a lot of this is how do we prevent a faction from getting big enough to <clears throat> come in and say, well, we have fifty one people, you have forty nine. Therefore, we're going to pass all these laws against those forty nine, and in favor of us fifty one. Um, seems like that's yeah, his biggest I mean, I think, problem. I mean, I think it's 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 that. It's also. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly, you know, the, it's fear of like mob democracy, right? Yeah. Like, you know, the the minor the majority is not does not hold property. The minority does. Um, the you know that sort of thing. Or I think in this case also is like, uh, if the majority of the states within a government, the majority of states maybe say, um are anti-slave or are like a abolitionist and a few states are not abolitionist that majority imposing their will on the minority number of states so there's like kind of multiple layers to kind of think about that majoritarian rule but in general i think that is exactly right that they fear the majority way more than they fear the minority they the first bit of this he addresses this kind of um the the minority bit, uh, he basically and dismisses it as a non-factor, not, not nothing to even consider. He says, if a faction consists of less than a majority, relief is supplied by the Republican principle, which enables the majority to defeat defeat its sinister views by regular vote. It may clog the administration, it may convulse the society, but it will un it will be unable to execute and mask its violence under the forms of the Constitution. So. It's no problem. They can they can just vote it down. As, yeah, as, they can behave as all they want to, but they will not be able to like actually enact legislation. They won't be able to enact, execute, you know, gather power because of their you know of the principles of the Constitution. So, just completely dismiss is this kind of concern that a minority will, um, a minority faction will exercise undue violence on on uh, on the government which I think I think is a point we probably want to come back to yeah no totally I mean and I think he you know so he gets into even right right before that section he talks about some of the different factions that might play out in the policy realm which I thought was interesting so he talks about like you know well legislature legislatures come from the people and so um, it and they're passing laws that affect the people, including themselves. So, is a law proposed concerning private debts? It is a question to which the creditors are parties on one side and the debtors on the other. 
So essentially, like any policy, he, he says, like any policy that gets passed is going to, um, you know, have a winner and a loser, essentially, right? Uh, and um, every part uh, policy will also be voted on by the people who are affected, right? Like they're not, it is vain to say that enlightened statesmen will be able to adjust these clashing interests and render them all subservient to the public good. <laughs> Even if you believe that, and this is your favorite quote, right? I think like, enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm. So even if you did have these like angels in the government, right, who are just like, I care about the public good. So yes, I am a debtor and I'm going to, you know, pass a policy like that's hard on, on people who owe money um, because that's what the public good requires. This like capital P, capital G, right? As if there is a, you know, single good that can be idealized or can be like realized through policy. I'm going to put my own rational interests aside and go after that public good. But I, I retire, some sleazebag comes in and just starts voting for shit that helps him. So even if you get the occasional public good seeking angel, eventually you're not going to have those people. And he recognizes that even as they're forming the government, sometimes you're going to get some, some sleazebags in there. Um, yeah. And well, yeah. which I find interesting yeah. is like almost a concern more with like sort of transparently self-interested individuals and factions rather than like competing visions of the good. Right. right? Yeah. Like, there's no discussion you know, of like different goods because they, yeah. we're still like, in the enlightenment, right? We're still in the platonic. Yeah. There is a good with a capital G that if we just rationalize hard enough altogether, we're going to be able to get there. Right. That's a good point. So maybe they just, they're not really able to I, conceptualize factions competing on the on the basis of different senses of the good, and instead factions just kind of cl like clamoring over pieces of, of a pie, and it's this all self-interested sort of like uh, factions rather than this sort of what what I, what I feel like today is at least con conceivably motivates people today, which is like a competing sense of. Yeah, I think it's actually. Let's get into that a little bit now because I think like which I hold, yeah, real go. quick, real quick. I just want to say I think points to what you said, which is think about when this is written. All of the, you know, Nietzsche, Camus, the world, world wars, all of the existentialism, all of the postmodernism, all of the the Marxism, and all the all the critical theory that comes out of that. All of that has yet to take place. That doesn't exist. All of that. Ex Explosion in terms of expansion, in terms of understanding the way societies might be ordered. None of that has happened yet. And so, whereas today, you and I can sit here and go, what are you talking about? There's a million ways to conceive of the good. And not only are there a million ways to conceive of the good, there's like a, at least a dozen ways to think about the meta question of how to conceive of good as a possibility, <laughs> you know, like the, the, the levels of like confusion that exist around this concept of the public good is so we're so saturated in it today um whereas i perhaps it's just not really um as, as obvious a problem for you know, the writers of these papers no i think they it's really like straight out of plato's cave to be honest i think they're really like there is an ideal and we need to all We'll never like we, we need to like uncloud our reason above all 
and through rationality, we will all converge. If we try hard enough and we think hard enough and we make the right logical arguments, we'll be able to approach that. We'll be able to leave the cave, right? We'll be able to see, yeah. like, the, we'll be able to realize the good and all hold hands. And we all, because we all want the same capital G good, right? And Yeah, and I guess, you know, and, and perhaps another aspect of this is the fact that, you know, we've talked about that diversity of values that exist within these various states, but also perhaps is the fact that it's not that diverse. It's all a set of landed white men who have kind of rolled out of the English, English um, bourgeois class of, of a yeah. certain, you know, dec- several decades and all kind of share a single sense of this sort of enlightenment sense. They're all on the same page. And so some of these underlying premises are just not even subject to be challenged in a way um, that they're going to get exploded into to a million pieces in the coming centuries as uh, intellectually diversity is injected and also like culturally and demographically and ethnically and racially and blah 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 like all these diversities are going to explode in the u.s over the next century right and it's, it's really it's really interesting because there is this fixation on liberty right at the same time which feels yeah like almost an evergreen virtue throughout these different intellectual eras like you could make there's obviously an existentialist case for liberty right and for freedom mm-hmm. um just as there might be a you know enlightenment case for it or a platonic case for it or something um and so it's funny because like you're arguing for like you know people are all different and we want people to be free but then you're still coming you still like fall back to there's such a thing as the public good and the public good is to them i think not just the sum of individual desires i think that's like uh because then you would be probably more okay with the majority rule right um Mm -hmm. they view like they view it as no, there is some like there are times when the majority does things that are wrong, and ironically, they couldn't, they didn't maybe see slavery as an example of that during this time. But we <laughs> realized it later, right, as a society that like, even though the majority may want this, the majority of voting people, obviously, there are tons of humans who didn't want this, <laughs> um, but um, you know, we uh, we eventually like recognized and have now. You know, we have a whole Civil Rights Act, right, which protects um, the minority in a much, in this case, racial minority. But we, we have all sorts of protections for minority people because um, even if the majority says they, you know, even if 51 percent of people say we want to, I don't know, start shooting people in the streets, we still have a government and a constitution that's founded in. Well, that's not inherently in the public interest. That's not in the public good that people like vigilante justice is not something we want. So, um, you know, we should strive towards a quote public good, which is a neither the majority nor the minority opinion, but is some elusive ideal that we can uncover through, you know, case law, precedent, judicial precedent. And, and, uh, and I also think obviously and also just legislation. They, they assume, they assume that just percolates. I mean, that's what I think. They just, just sort of assume that it's, will be sort of latent and obvious 
Right. That's what sort of almost strikes me. It it's hilarious. Like, it's like naive, right? That's the naive part. But it's beautiful, yeah. too, because in some sense, you know, this is where, you know, I'm not trying to shit on the Enlightenment or any of these ideas too hard because it's not like the existentialists have it all figured out either or anyone who's come after them. Um, you know, I think there is something really, there is some like common sense shit that like, I think we can all look around now and say like, hey, polluting rivers, probably a public, like probably not a good thing. And like, I don't need a rational argument. It does seem to be like there are some like inherent goods out there, but how you get to them mechanistically and legalistically, I think is tricky to say the least. But, um, you know, and whether those goods have a capital G or whether those are relative to our, you know, place in time and history and the current economy and whatever in society, you know. Yeah, um, it's almost like they miss a miss. They didn't. They could not possibly imagine the degree to which models of the public good could be con conceived and weaponized to serve the various factional interests, self-interests. Right. Right. Like. It, right. It would seem to you know. It's like every factional self-interest can construct a model of the good that serves their personal self, that faction self-interest. Today, that's the way it works. Right. Everybody argues in terms of competing models of the good, but if you like peer through that, it just so happens that, that model of the good serves their specific factional interest. Um, now you can be cynical about that and say, well, that's why it's like that, or you can say it's the opposite. You know, there's a lot of different ways to think about this, but you don't have to be super cynical, even though perhaps sometimes it is easiest and logical or seems the obvious uh, answer, uh, but yeah, so it's 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 sort of remarkable. It's, it's, again, it goes to that first that first sentiment I took. I was like, the, how how distant this setting seems to where we are today. Um, perhaps, and to me, just personally, it feels a little sad. <laughs> you know, <laughs> July Fourth, you're reading this. You're, I was reading this on July Fourth, just being like, wow, we've come a long ways. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna jump. Okay, so, so I'm dying to move, talk about wanna... our current Congress and our our current. I'm dying, but I'm not. I'm gonna hold off just for a bit before we like. Because I want to. I want to get to the republic. To, Let's talk like, about the the benefits of the republic. Because yeah. now it's like democracies are bad, yeah. majorities are scary, factions are awful, or uh, but we can't protect pre prevent them from forming. How do we mitigate them? Uh, this yeah, one simple one of, trick. Something form some, a republic. It's called yeah former republic and it's going to mitigate it's not going to address the causes of factions but it will mitigate the effects of factions and specifically uh, when a majority is a faction that represents the majority is formed what about a republic sort of mitigates the ability for that majority to um, engage in its evil enact its evil interests you know or its self-interests on the minority um, and, and I think and his argument it. here is actually a little more convoluted. <laughs> I think his stuff on the causes is really good, but his stuff on the effects on how Republic solves it, it kind of feels like square peg round hole. Like, I think this is the best form of government, so I'm going to work backwards from Republic to show that it's the best way to solve it. There's not to say there's no yeah. value here, but I think that's kind of the perspective I got here. So one of his arguments, which... Does, yeah, I, I, I agree. I felt, I was like expecting something more logically like <laughs> yeah. 
astounding, you know, and it yeah. can end up being a little bit like, hmm, I can see how you're making that argument, but... It feels a little forced, right? Seems a little, <laughs> yeah, seems a little, like, convenient. Seems like you might be part of a Federalist faction, you could say, <laughs> yeah. trying try to get some sort of position over on the majority of people, or on the minority of people. Yeah. But the... Yeah. So like the one so one thing is it's kind of like there's a yeah like they just effect. didn't go meta back then dude nobody went meta I'm sure they did but I, I that's not fair they definitely did go meta but like you know uh, that sort of like ironic meta cynicism that we just like are so fluid in I feel like was not as no dude Madison put on his thinking cap <laughs> he he yeah. eliminated all of the. The self besides his pure rational mind, and then he just, you know, just thought about the public good. Um, and that's how we produce this document. But so his first, the first beneficial effect of the Republic is there's like a filtering, essentially. It's yep. like, just like this indirect filtering of like all the people's ideas have to go through a representative, and um, it's therefore less likely, I guess, somehow that representatives will share the beliefs. I mean, whether or not this is true, it's really funny in comparison in contact in context of our current system, but where it's like, is public opinion considered at all? Um, you know, but in any case, there's some filtering effect of like, you have to go through a statesman who is like thinking about the public good rather than just some quote, mob quote, of quote. people. Yeah, we, we, let me give you a quote here. Who quote whose wisdom may best discern the true interest of their country, and whose patriotism and love of justice will be least likely to sacrifice it to the temporary or partial considerations. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. That's the part that you know. It's like whether or not that was legit back then. It's just painfully um, sad to you know, look at our current representation and think that has anything to do with them yeah well honestly even you know even back then it's like um oh yeah having a strong federal federal government and um you know i don't know whatever you can look at all the stuff that like uh hamilton's arguing for uh, it's like oh yeah you come from like finance and you're arguing for all this like financialization of the country yeah like shocker <laughs> yeah <laughs> like um yeah but uh so anyway, the uh, so that's one, and then the second is that. So then he talks about like, well, should you have a small republic or a big republic? Well, small republic's bad because if you only have like three people, you need to corrupt. That's a lot harder. That's a lot easier than corrupting ten or a hundred or a yeah. thousand. So we should have a big republic. So it's like we don't want a democracy, but we want a we want a republic for sure because we want the filtering, but we don't want to filter it down to like one person because that's a king. Three's not More really like it. So what's the right size? Ten. Well, it's, you know, it well, follows also, that. The argument, yeah, go ahead. the argument is that a democracy can't grow as large as a republic. A republic can grow much larger. And that's actually a benefit because large republics uh, are less likely to be taken over by a majority. Right. That's his thought. Again, is that large I, I, republics again, and large Which is convenient because that's what we're proposing <laughs> yeah. yeah conveniently matching the large country we have on our hands um you know what they considered large you know they considered that the united, the united states at that point was considered very very large territorially relative to um 
you know, let's say to territory of uh, some of the European nations. Yeah. So he says, like, if you have a large number, if 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 you have if a representative governs over a greater number of citizens, it's hard for unworthy candidates to practice. Um, with success, the vicious arts by which elections are too often carried. So if you have enough candidates, or if you have enough people, like you represent enough people, if you represent 10,000 people, you're not going to be able to like bribe 10,000 people. But if you represent too many people, then you get out of touch, essentially. So you got to strike yeah. that, yeah. that happy medium, that right? That happy medium, yeah. Which, again, not specified, unquantifiable, but great. Arist Aristotelian, nonetheless, like go with Aristotle. And also just like... Yeah. Yeah, it'll be more difficult for unworthy candidates to practice the vicious odds by which elections are too often carried. And you're like, yeah, back then it was like petty, like, oh, I'll give you a turkey, <laughs> you know, or like bribe you with like various. But it's just like, yeah, no, they figured out a way to conduct vicious, <laughs> con <laughs> yeah. conduct the vicious arts and carry elections, despite the fact that I don't know how, how many people each representative represents today, but hundreds of thousands of people if not millions, represented, I guess, how many representatives are this? 430-something representatives, so hundreds of thousands of people are represented by each representative. Yeah, and so then yeah. he argues, well, the other thing is, you know, you want more territory, right? You want the big country, as you were saying, because if you have a big country, by definition, right, of course, a big country is going to have lots of different types of religions, lots of different types of industries being represented across all of this vast territory. And so because of all these different, you know, the sheer variety, it will prevent uh, a majority of people coming together to invade the rights of other citizens, he says. Yeah. And, or I, if yeah, such ex a... Extend, what? Extend the sphere, extend yeah. the sphere, and you take in a greater variety of parties and interests make it less probable that a majority of the whole will have a common motive to invade the rights of another, of other citizens. And if that motive does exist, it'll be more difficult for all those who feel it to discover their own strength and act in unison. Um, which I found really interesting, actually. What do you think about that? Do you think that's true? No. Obviously, well, I think it probably... So well, this is... Yeah, so this is great. This is what I really want to get into. So two things. Um... I'll start there because we were just talking about that, but the global, I think the impact of globalization and the homogenization of culture and of the economy, the financialization of the economy, and, you know, like, it's kind of eliminated this. Like, you would need the sphere to extend to the whole world at this point to really get the variety we're talking about. I think in our current country, I don't think there are, there exists different meaningfully different um, variety of, of interests in California or in LA versus New York. Now there might be in upstate New York and New York City, you know, we can talk about the ur urban rural divide, which existed then. And I think has only, you know, I think it's just persisted, not wasn't settled in the civil war and it persists to this day, not just between the South and the North, although it's easy to still look at it along those battle lines, but in every single state, I think there's that urban-rural divide that has been here since the founding of the country. Um, and, you know, so extending territory, I don't think, solves that necessarily. Um, and I think, yeah, like I said, globalization has made it so that, um, yeah, if you're a part of the, you know, 
there just isn't that type of like there aren't the trades anymore i don't know how else to say it like there's not like the the, the economy was so much simpler then right like you were in like yeah. shipbuilding or finance or agriculture you know and, and shipbuilding is a stand-in for like simple like, manufacturing um or I, building trade i don't know no. I, I i think i i think i disagree with you though i think actually that there's something here that's interesting to me is like perhaps the gridlock quote-unquote gridlock of the modern legislature is exactly the fact that the sphere has gotten so big both territorially and culturally and uh and population wise and technically and economically the sphere has gotten vast and so there's so many factions the factions are infinite not or you know approaching infinity um and we don't even realize the degree to which like these these so-called big factions, the GOP and Democrats, we think that's what's holding up, holding us up. But in fact, it's just that uh, mm. we're, the sphere, the sphere has gotten so large that we actually do not agree. There is no majority on any issue. Those, that's uh, interesting. I I could I could go there with you. I'm not like I don't want to disagree outright because. I do feel like I, I do want to lean Democrat Republican are the problem and it's more of a like of these two causes of what's wrong with our republic I would say it's more of uh, there aren't enough candidates there aren't enough um, you know statesmen <laughs> like with there we don't have enough people and so it's more of a case of people being representing far fewer and I think per capita right like especially if you look at how this is written let's say that they did land on the happy median perfectly because they thought so hard about it um in 1787 right how many people did a senator represent right like a couple thousand yeah. ten thousand a hundred thousand well tops? A, senator did, a senator you mean a, you mean a representative well either either person. fine yeah i mean a senator would vary but yeah let's say a representative because it'll be more yeah like per yeah, capita so representatives yeah are just just you know, so what was the population? Let me just do this. Let's just look at the total. Uh, what was? What do you think the population was in 1787? Total population 1787. I don't know. Two million. Two million. Yeah. Let's see. Um, oh come on! Don't do this to me. All right. Uh, how bad is it? How I, I'm going to be embarrassed. Oh, no, no. I'm just. I'm trying. I got. Of course, it's giving it to me by state, and I'm just like, okay, here we go. Uh, the first census is so we got 1799, and it was four million, three point nine million. Okay, so I wasn't. So it's I wasn't appallingly so, off. I don't know how many uh, uh, House representatives we had then, but we should if they hit the perfect mean. We should be have a hundred times more. Yeah, no, I, I read somewhere that it would be, um, there'd be over a thousand represented. Where would it? There's a yeah. Where was I reading that? So we have four hundred now. So there should be forty thousand, right? Yeah, it was something like that. It was yeah. just like the number of represented. Now, which of course becomes impossible. Why is that impossible? They did it back then. What do you mean? What do you mean they did it back then? I mean, they had like, 40. you know, three, I don't know what it is, divide by, like, I don't know, however many people, so we got, I don't know, man, we got 400 
<laughs> doing math. But you now still have to podcast. take a vote. You still have to take a vote. Right, but it would be my representative would be like my neighborhood, essentially, or like northern. It wouldn't be like the Austin metro. It's like Austin would have like hundreds, a hundred representatives, right? And it would be for like yeah. a neighborhood. It'd be for like you know like uh, Gowanus. It's an interesting question. Would that would that would that body be like? Would it ever be able to cohere into a majority and and get things done? I mean, I don't know. I think of of the two causes, do we have too many factions and we can't agree on anything? And so the I mean, I think there's probably obviously it's like it's not going to be one or the other. But I think I think you're onto something too. I just think like yeah, it's clear that like he he notes that you know if you don't rep- if you represent way too many people like how could you possibly know what those people care about? My I, my representative has no idea what the people in my community care about, and my community yeah, well, does like it might share a lot of lot in common with other you know I don't know semi rural like to my point I think your community that that your representative represents is incredibly varied you know it's like so varied that um even in the communities where it's like not a not a democrat not a competitive you know district right where it's just like oh it's a red district or a blue district i think the variation in values and desires and interests is so immense um i i don't i think that sort of like quote-unquote non-competitiveness is like a total illusion is completely divorced from the actual diversity of opinions and interests and values that exists anywhere you go even within a single but i i let me say let me put it this way though like if you know i don't know what the math is so i'm just gonna and i'm not gonna do it now but let's just say like it's ten thousand people okay so i think that sounds right that a representative should represent, or maybe it's maybe it's even less. Maybe it's five thousand. I don't know. I guess three hundred million divided by four hundred, uh, or and then times a hundred. Oh, yeah, blah, blah. I don't know. Who knows what it is? But let's say it's a thousand people. If it's if it's a thousand people versus a hundred thousand people, because it's a, it's an order of a hundred difference. We know that. Mm-hmm. Um, if it is a thousand people that you represent, you know. Or you're trying to represent because remember there are elections, right? Who's going to win the person with the name recognition or the person who goes door-to-door to a thousand homes? Because that's easier to do. Yeah, you know and you can actually get to know your community Versus if you're representing a hundred thousand people your only option is to just blast Shit on TV and radio and <laughs> and try like these cheap things, but you can actually like know those diverse varied opinions you can know hey like I'm not but just how would that body cohere? Okay, so I got you. I, I agree. I, okay. I, I'll take your point there and I agree. So then the next question is, can a body of however many legislators you just proposed cohere into something that actually is capable of governance? So here's where I want to now, introduce another... Now, now, you, okay, now, go ahead. now you, might say, you might say, well, look at our current body. It's also incapable of governance, so... <laughs> What's the risk? But um, I guess that would be the counterpoint where I would go. Is like, okay, fine, granted. But can you legislate with forty thousand representatives? So here's here's what I would say. I'd say one of the major problems, which we haven't talked about, and I really also want to talk about, is the corporate uh, the corporatization of politics. Um, 
politics as a career didn't exist in this era. Um, and there's this great, I've been looking for it ever since I saw it on Reddit like 10 years ago. This is great, like, here is a, a distribution of like, what was the person's job before they were in Congress? Um, and in this era, it's like 20% like merchant, 20% banker, 20% farmer, 20% military, like 5% lawyer, 10% lawyer or something. And then you see, and they change it, they show you the distribution over time. And around like, um, as, the, as like time goes on, lawyer grows and grows. And then around the 1900, you see career politician enter the stage for the first time. And now, if you look at our legislative body, it is 70% career politicians who are not members or never members of, you know, quote, <laughs> society. <laughs> they were always, they were born to govern, apparently. That's all they've done their whole lives is, you know, study fucking politics, I guess, and then come in and rule over people. There's that problem. There's obviously the problem of, so politics as a career, as a lucrative career, right? So you not only get to control people, but there's obviously all of the corruption we have. And I think that corporate influence probably has a lot to say. I would argue that the majority of what Congress legislates is you know, uh, you know, corporate disputes. So to the extent that there is a policy debate in this country, it's because there are corporate entities that are opposed to each other. It has nothing to do with the public will at all. And these politicians cater to the corporations and there, there are far fewer factions. So it's actually, you know, you have a representative, you've got a bunch of people and it is a tyranny of the majority, but the majority is not representing, it's not a majority of people, it's a majority of companies all want certain policies. And so those, or the policies don't, like businesses understand like, yeah, I don't care if you, you know, whatever, allow the whatever factories to dump into the river, just allow me to, you know, whatever, dump into the farms or whatever. And so they don't step on each other's toes because it's all just dollars and cents. So there's no... The companies don't have a sense of public good. So neither do the, the statesmen. So that's a, I just want to add that context real quick. We can disagree about or talk about all of that shit more in the modern world. But to my to your question, I think if you were in 2022 to multiply the number of representatives by 100 and therefore they represent a far smaller number of people, people would know who their representative is. There's a much greater chance. It's a much greater chance the representative would know them and be from their community. It's a much greater chance that that representative is not a career politician because if a career politician walked into, you know, Lago Vista and they only represented a thousand people in Lago Vista, Texas versus someone I know, the guy who runs the store in Lago Vista who actually knows everyone in this town and decides he wants to run and, you know, he tells you, he can, you know, here's what I'm thinking about, you know, these are the things I care about. That guy's gonna go to DC, and I think it's gonna be actually much easier for that guy to form a consensus with some other small store owner or some other like real person. I don't know how else to say it, like a real human being from a real community. They might all agree on things that are actually quote the public good, like, hey, how about we don't dump shit into into our like common water? I think that's something that a lot of normal people human beings would agree on and form consensus around and you would actually see like quote public good policies like that um 
because it's I see the the the, the more uh, fewer people to representative thousands. as a filtering effect on corruption. Thousands, thousands of people, thousands and thousands of people together to pass legislation. Sure. It's not like oh, like let's get a a dozen or fifty or even a hundred votes. It's like thousands of votes. But I think you have a much more engaged populace, and I think you have a much more. I think the you know there's interest in like. There, yeah, certain things, you're right, certain big things would probably not happen, right? Um, like, should we build a nuclear plant in uh, Tennessee or something? Or I don't know, that's, that's a dumb example, that's not a policy. Um, should we go to war in Afghanistan, though? We're going to have a great 4th of July in Washington, D.C. It'll be like no other. It'll be special, and I hope a lot of people come, and it's going to be uh, about this country, and it's a salute to America. And I'm going to be here, and I'm going to say a few words, and we're going to have planes going overhead, the best fighter jets in the world, and other planes, too. And we're going to have some tanks stationed outside. Got to be pretty careful with the tanks, because the roads have a tendency not to like to carry heavy tanks, so we have to put them in certain areas. But we have the brand-new Sherman tanks, and we have the brand-new uh, Abram tanks, and we have uh, some incredible equipment, military equipment on display, brand-new. Thank you.